but the lakes in Ireland are they're so beautiful and the the culture of the boats and the size and the bugs both individually and the hatch and the way those fish come up and eat that in itself is a experience I would come over I would come to Ireland every year for that as much as I would come for Atlantic salmon fishing I say that from the bottom of my heart I think that's really a, a fantastic experience Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. If you're a fan of fly fishing, writing and magazines, then you've most likely heard of The Drake, an American quarterly that's been running for 25 years, featuring some of the best writers covering the why rather than the how of fly fishing. It's got a unique voice run by its founder, publisher and editor Tom Boy, who's also a regular visitor to these shores, sampling the brown trout and salmon fishing to be had. Soon after Tom visited Ireland earlier this year, we caught up with him to get his impressions of the fishing here and how some of it compares to the waters that he fishes in the States. Plus, of course, we had to ask him about Drake magazine and its 25 years of success. But first, Tom, I know you've had articles in Trout and Salmon, you know, Trout magazine, you know, <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> Have you not? I haven't seen your byline in uh, Drake uh, recently, no? <laughs> yeah, actually, it was funny. When we, when we went to do that and interview Tom, I remember Drake Magazine. I used to see it a lot more a couple of years back. I was just thinking there, actually. The place I used to see was in uh, just up the road here, Roy Pierce's Lodge yeah. in Grasshopper Cottage. And I think Roy either used to get it in or quite often he'd have American guests and they'd leave copies there. Um, fantastic magazine. I really liked it. Um, some great, some great, um, some really good articles in it. So it was fantastic to get to talk to him. But, um, just there, I think we discussed it with Tom as well. I mean, magazines have suffered really badly, though. Um, you know, it's, you know, I mean, 20, 25 years ago, that's how people got their information. But it, it, it's it's changed so much now. And I know from chat to you, I mean, you used to get the Drake Mag, didn't you? I think especially when I first started Fly Fishing, you know, you kind of mm. immerse yourself in the culture of it. And um, Drake Mag, uh, Fly Fishing Journal, um, love that mm. as well. Um, yeah, it just kind of got too difficult to get and deliveries and prices mm. and all that. Um, and then, in fairness, Pete Tijus in the UK, um, he does it with Flight Culture magazine. He's trying to do something similar. I always wondered, God, would it be a brilliant, you know, would it be a market for an Irish fly fishing magazine? Yeah, I remember that. You know, yeah. and then you look at like even Tom Boy talks about, you know, print costs, you know, the size of the yeah. market. And, you know, it's like, and that is the thing when you have digital, A, you can do it so much easier. Now, yeah, you know, trying to make Just money on it is a whole other thing. But like, you know, it's, I suppose if we had talked, if like say fifteen years ago, if we were talking about fly fishing in Ireland, we might have said, you know what, let's do a magazine. I'll let you in on a little secret. I was going through my old, uh, my old, uh, I have a backup disc, right, and I was looking up a thing um, from when I worked for the Hardys because there was a guy on Facebook and he had a marksman drifter rod. And he didn't know he got it, he liked it, he didn't want to know the history of it. So I actually checked all my old things. So from actually it was 2009. But in my old files, I have our draft document for the Ireland on the Fly magazine. Oh my God. What year was we that? Were looking, oh God, I don't know. Because I, I went through every year now. I must I, I the disc still out, back up the backup discs. Oh God, I think that was 2013. 10 years. You had sent me um, uh, a draft. Of of your proposals first, yeah, yeah, it's great, yeah. really interesting. I must send it back to yeah, still have it. But that's back to Tom. I I was really impressed with Tom. I, what he was saying, how, how Drake has seemed to have bucked the trend. Yeah, you know, 
it survived and it's it's growing within you know within within the american market you know yeah i always think there's a danger with you know we always talk about the irish press for the older generation who remember it the newspaper it died off because its readers died and that's always the danger with older media that if you're not latching onto the younger gen mm. that eventually you know, your readership will die with you. Like in the Irish press, famously, that's what they said, what happened, you know? That Is that what they said, what happened? Yeah, yeah. That's what they didn't attract the younger younger audience. Yeah. You know, it was well, the, you can see a lot of correlations to that now because we've talked about the aging demographics within fly fishing. Mm. So you would, you know, immediately think, oh my God, there's someplace, you know, where that's applicable to as well. Yeah, but let, then I suppose, look at where's, where's the demographics of fly fishing, Jen, gone? They're digital, YouTube, you know, uh. Insta, podcast now you know um mm-hmm. and you know that's you got to go where the audience is i remember I, I i i did my first podcast back in 2007 right right <laughs> I, I had set up i'd set up a digital media company with a former colleague of mine back then we were doing video content for mobile phones going yeah. off in a bit of a tangent here um so we started doing video content for mobile phones right i'll never forget it so we were we'd contracts with Vodafone, Air, O2, 3, all these things, making making content. And they thought people would pay for content on their phones, right? And this is before the iPhone. Um, yeah, so I yeah, had like yeah, a yeah. Nike, Nokia 9310, which was like a state-of-the-art Ooh. kind of Nokia. But I remember <laughs> I now, remember I, them. <laughs> I would have been in my late mid to late 20s at the time. And I remember showing my friends who were the same age as me, and I was showing them, here, look, here's a video on your phone. Yeah, <laughs> video on your phone. Nobody's going to watch video on your phone. What are you mad? <laughs> yeah. And like this wasn't, all, you know what I mean. And then fast forward, but anyway, so we did um we did a podcast for Leinster Rugby, and we called right. it, but we couldn't call it a podcast because nobody would have known what a podcast was. We had podcast to call was. it Leinster Rugby Radio because it was the only way you could pitch it, and it was on their right. website. You know what I mean? Because there was nowhere you could really get it. Like so. But what I'm saying is fast forward a couple of years, technology eventually catches up, you know, yeah. stopped clock is right, you know, twice a day kind of thing. So like, so I remember we did that in 2007, 2008, nothing happened after that really for kind of five, six years. Yeah. Then what happened was the iPhone came along, the podcast, smartphones, smartphones yeah. the podcast app yeah. was by default on the homepage of the, of the iPhone and data plans came into play. So suddenly mm. you were streaming everything on data for like whatever it was, 20 quid a month. And suddenly it just exploded, you know? So if it's kind of one of those things, if, or look at, and then I look, say, look at video on phones. If you kind of stick around long enough, you know, if you're, you can be ahead of the curve, you can be too ahead of the curve. Um, yeah. So I'm always looking at kind of going, oh, I wonder where the next, the next thing is going. Like, but for me, I kind of, I like the podcast space. It's, you know, my background is in radio, so I kind of like the audio and the kind of immersive, you know, you, you really kind of, I think, you know, you see what our, any of the shows we do, you know, people do generally by and large stick with you for most of the show. Like that's, you know, an hours of people's yeah. time, you know? And you say, yeah. I remember you saying that to me when we were discussing that when we were starting off, but it, it's very true. And I know from talking to people and the feedback we get, you know, with podcasts, generally people tend to listen. In my own experience, I do. Mm. You know, once I switch on one, you know, even if I have to stop it halfway through, I will go back yeah. and finish it. Yeah, you know, it's um, um, there was a survey done. Um, people, most most people now you listen to five podcasts a week, so you've got your five, wow. five favorites. Yeah, so it's trying yeah. to get into that menu of people's favorites. Is what yeah, you know, and it's such a crowded market. Like there's five million plus podcasts out there. About a quarter of a million of them are updated regularly every week. 
you know. Right. So there's everything is out there for you. It's just trying to get get noticed. I don't know. I think there's still life in the magazines. I'd still love to do an yeah, Ireland, an Ireland <laughs> flight quarterly. I really would. <laughs> Answers on a buzzcard. Stay tuned, folks. If, if you would subscribe to an Ireland <laughs> flight quarterly, please let yeah. us know. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, is there an appetite out there? Yeah, let us know. What do you think, guys, girls? Is there an appetite out there for an Ireland on the fly quarterly? Answers on the back of a postcard, too. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but look, we've ideas. We'll, we'll, we'll do stuff in 2024, Tom, won't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2024. Yep. That's All the year. And actually, Tom, before we hear from Tom Boy, um, this week's guest, I did want to ask you, actually, have you guided many Americans coming over and kind of what's their expectations or what's your experience with them? I have actually. Now, I always say though, um, Americans tend to come here. Uh, fishing would be secondary. Golf and first. To their business. Yeah, no, actually, generally, well, maybe golfing, even then, quite a lot of them are Irish-American and are over here on a holiday. Either to see relations, check the routes, whatever. Uh, so Ireland wouldn't be their angling destination as such. I mean, they have such a huge amount of fishing uh, in in the States. So many places to go to there before they actually engage in a, you know, across a uh, transatlantic trip. But occasionally you will get them. You get the odd ones that, are, that they're here primarily for the fishing. Um, but a lot of what I get will be people come to the West Coast to see uh, relations, uh, routes and everything. Yeah, they're great. They're great. And it's great to have them. I mean, the reason I found out about stimulator flies back in the 90s was through uh, Americans coming over. Um, it's always good because they'll come with different different attitudes, anything like that. So, you know, they, where you get somebody with different ideas, different methods, you know, just to try them and see. Yeah, I get a lot of that. The stimulator one is actually interesting. The reason a uh, guy came, I uh, had a stimulator, I said, I was a bit like James. I said, should they catch fish? And he put them on at Inch Gill. And I'll never forget, on the top dropper, lovely olive stimulator, and bang, 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 you know, three fish were shot on them. Uh, three good fish in the top dropper, and He'd only small flybacks for traveling, and we went in anyway. I'd say he'd probably about, he might have had four or five of this pattern in the fly box, and he gave me two of them, and he says, there you are. So I was proud, and I used to put my flies in a fishing jumper. <laughs> so I chucked the two of them in, then I went down to the pub, the gilly hour, and I went to go show them, and when I got into the pub, they were gone, and realized they were barbless. <laughs> so I lost the pair, they didn't stick it jumper. And this was, this was early to mid-90s, before the internet. And I never saw stimulators again for another couple of years. You know, something like that. But yeah, no, you do get a lot. And as I said, it's really great for different methods and everything. Same with any angler coming from different spots. Do, do you know what I love actually, what fly fishing has done for me is that when you meet like-minded souls, no matter where you go in the world, you know, is that, you know, you'll find the fly fly angler or, you know, you can talk about, play, that becomes the prism through which it's, yeah. which you look at things and, and talk about things. And there's just a commonality there, which is, uh, I love it. I think that's brilliant. Like wherever you go, if you meet a fly angler, you go, oh yeah, and you can talk about your fishing. That's and, very true. And the, and the word you just said there, the commonality, mm-hmm. it's amazing because immediately, you know, there's there for people to, you know, for Complete strangers yep. to discuss about. Yeah, you know? no, Fantastic. it is. It is. And in fairness, and Tom Boy, what he says, what he loves about Ireland, it's not just the fish and what we hear generally is it's to crack the people, the culture, 
you know, it's, it's a much, he really, yeah, much which is wider great to thing. hear. But he, he, he did, he did press press upon that, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, he said, you know, it's not just about fishing, yeah. but there's so much more. You know, exactly. Well, look, let's get back to this week's guest, Tom Boy of the Drake Magazine, and he discussed his experience of his fly fishing trip to Ireland earlier this year. This most recent visit was in June, and tried to come a little earlier than I had the previous year partly to do some lake trout fishing lock Ireland and uh and to also try to get into some Atlantic salmon fishing and while I didn't have much success on the Atlantic salmon front I just found Ireland very welcoming both the people and the access to fishing and especially as it relates to Atlantic salmon, because I've been to Iceland and England and a lot of places where it's just much more expensive and just even the attitude isn't as welcoming as Ireland. I'd say it was tough going for the salmon, Tom. It was, but I'm lifelong steelhead fly fisherman in the west coast of america so i'm i'm well versed in slow fishing trips but it didn't affect my trip at all to be honest i mean i i i I understand how hard atlantic salmon are to catch even in great conditions and it was sunny and and hadn't rained in a bit but that's fine it was, I mean, the the trout fishing was spectacular and I'll get back there and catch my salmon. I definitely saw them in a few rivers. They get kind of holed up, but it's, I'm very familiar with that. I'm very familiar with the process of not catching salmon, put, <laughs> despite putting in hours doing it. It's, and, it's the know, nature I'm, of salmon. Just like steelhead. Yeah, right. I know I could go back that- there. Someday and maybe get three in a day. And that's just how it works. Mm. But and tell me this, Tom, did you have any close calls? Did you even come into contact with any? I don't think so. I mean, I, I probably moved a couple on the, uh, gal- you know, they'll kind of just, you can see them move over and kind of take a look at it. And they yeah. were very uninterested, but it, it's, uh, again, I just, I love the two handed casting. I love the, that process i mean you better right if you're a steelhead fisherman or an atlantic salmon fishing you you better really enjoy making those two-handed casts and working your way down a river because that's going to be most of what you do (laughs) but I, i really do get a lot just out of that process and uh you know the trade off is i had we had sunny weather so it was it was nice just not nice for catching salmon <laughs> and um tell me this tom did you what do you remember like kind of the, some of the places you went uh fishing in ireland where was the kind of places they brought you to man we we, we covered a lot uh and we started out on the first trip on the on the moy um and we traveled a lot through connemara um lock ina am i saying that right yep lock ina uh, which was really cool. You know, there, there just is, uh, so much less 
lake fishing, lake fly fishing in the U.S. than what is done in Ireland and around a lot of Europe. So that was kind of new to me. But even the lakes are different, right? Because you you have these rivers flowing through them. So you have salmon swimming through them as well. And and some of that is is different. Um, I really liked uh, the um, Bali Nahinch. Am I getting close? Yep. With that, yep. with you that got one? it. You uh, got it. I just, I thought the castle itself was really cool. And that, that was one of the waters that on the one hand, it was, I was bummed because we couldn't fish it. The water was low, but I was also glad to see that those restrictions are in place. It's, it's, they're important. And it's the same thing that we do here in the, in the States. Um, but I, we caught, uh, nice brown trout everywhere that uh, I went and they were you know the, those aren't native fish in the US so mm. that's kind of a neat experience just to be able to actually fish them on their real waters and and there's there's kind of an impression of European fly fishers just over the last five, 10 years that they're really into nymphing because Euro nymphing is such a thing here. Mm-hmm. But I was very impressed with not just the skill of Irish dry fly fishermen, but how that seems to be, that is by far the preferred way. Like I, I visited a lot of rivers and I, I, I wasn't seeing people tying on nymphs in the evening. They were putting on the dry fly. And so that, that was very impressive and meant a lot to me because that's how I prefer to fish as well. Yeah. We've had a few people on the show who will be the, the exact same as you actually, Tom, I have to say that, yeah. but Tom, I want to go back there. You fished a couple of um, the locks or lakes. Right. Um, and did you do what we call the lock style fishing? We did. did more of that that the first year, and it it's really interesting because it's it is different than how a lot of people fish here for when they're uh, on a boat. Just I just love there's so much to uh, it's the kind of boat that they use and the 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 way the guides will go about it based on the kind of fish you're you're trying to get and that that. Um, lock style is really it's much longer leaders than i'm used to for for one thing but i i get the whole idea of it when there's a hatch out there just to try to mimic what that you know a fly trying to leave the water but then uh then i i really did enjoy um the the big what we call drakes they're they're mayflies uh, on this most recent trip. And it was just such a, a fun experience to get out there. Uh, and this have it not be about Atlantic salmon. Right. <laughs> and, and these are eight, nine, 10 pound brown trout that are, um, I mean, it takes some getting used to that's, that's not quite the lock style fishing. Right. But it's just, 
it's such a visual experience. And I think that's a big part of what fly fishermen look for. And there's a few um, similar events in the, in the U S in terms of uh, that sort of hatch taking place, but it, they typically aren't that big of fish that you're fishing in Sheelan or, or the hatch that they're talking about isn't quite as big as as what I saw there. It was very impressive. Both the fish and the bugs was was a really neat experience. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like American fly anglers, you have such choice in North America in terms of where you can go that you really don't need to be kind yes. of looking across the other side of the Atlantic. You know, that it doesn't really come on Ireland maybe doesn't really come on the radar. Maybe occasionally maybe salmon anglers that might want to go to Scotland, you know, because of the historic kind of, you know, origins of it there am i right in saying that that fly anglers generally don't look this side of the atlantic um if you're in america yes i think that's a fair thing to say but there there are the traditional folks who travel over here that are fly fishers are the atlantic salmon people right and and what i found so refreshing about ireland is again that the access is i mean it's it's far more affordable than most of these any any of these other places and yet and the fish numbers are similar but it really wouldn't even be listed on most americans top four or five atlantic salmon destinations um but i fished in ireland and i fished some of these you know in in I, I know the situation in England and Scotland and, and a lot of these other Atlantic salmon destinations. And I mean, you're paying a thousand, twelve hundred bucks a day if you can get on it. In Iceland <laughs> mm-hmm. itself, people will come in and it'll be booked for the the week. And I love Iceland, it's great fishing, but you're I mean, you're in the middle of nowhere. You're not going to a pub afterwards. You're not, there's, there, there's, you know, it's, it's great for your back cast because there's no trees in the entire country. So you don't have to worry <laughs> about hooking your fly on anything, but you just, there's just so much more to the culture in Ireland. And I do think that, that there will be more people coming over. I mean, part of it, um, sadly, the, the, Atlantic salmon fisheries on the east coast of America are really poor too. And and so a lot of the people from the east coast that have traditionally done that will go up into Canada, Quebec, that area. But a five or six hour flight to Dublin, I mean, it wouldn't it would take less time to get there and fish in Ireland <laughs> than it does for you to right. drive yeah. 20 hours up to the Gaspé Peninsula. And I, I think there's just so many Americans that have, they have family connections in Ireland or they, a lot of it though really is the, the access it's, it's different because they're a lot of the trout streams are managed by clubs, but it's, it's really affordable. It's still might only cost you 10 or 20 bucks to go out there and fish. And it's, um, I mean, this is going to sound funny and you may laugh like, like 
Paul and Miles laugh when I brought it up. But Ireland doesn't have these predators around <laughs> when you're fishing in the evening. I mean, I saw, uh, what was it? Like a, it wasn't a raccoon. It was like, like the biggest mammal that you have there is like a, uh, not the not the Wolverine. What is it? Badger. It's a fox. Right? If, oh, badger. Badger or ba- fox. Badger. Right. Mm. I mean, I go two miles outside my door, and I've got grizzly, wolf, mountain lion. Uh, I mean, nine foot tall moose, and it's people think, yeah, that's really cool. That's the old west. It is, but when you're fishing out there, like a moose is. <laughs> You can't relax and not think about it. And it really is a a factor, especially the kind of a lot of the people I think that would really love going to Ireland are not just Atlantic salmon fishermen from the East Coast, but they're steelhead fishermen who would otherwise go to British Columbia, where you have the same sort of there. You come around a corner in the fog and there's a thousand pound grizzly bear walking down the. (laughs) It's beautiful and it's great, but you can't help but not think about it. In Ireland, you're going to see, yeah, a fox or some grasshoppers or something. I don't know. They're, they're, you like, see, though, Tom, Paul and Miles never told you about the deadly killer badgers we have on the South Coast. <laughs> <laughs> if he did, he probably told me he wrestled one to the ground or something. <laughs> but the other um, selling point, maybe, I think, uh, Tom, and maybe tell me, is it's the brown trout fishing. Like it's incredible, it it's incredible over here. And I know kind of people will travel for salmon and, you know, more exotic species. My apologies, Tom Doc. But like, you know, or, or they'll go to, you know, New Zealand where they can get massive brownies, you know. But the quality of the fishing here, I think, is probably underestimated from a drown- brown trout perspective. Very much so. Very much so. Uh, especially that, uh, you know, that Lake Sheelan and, and the 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 type of fishing that I did on this second trip is just not. I mean that the that first year also I went down to uh, sure the sure. Uh, down Bonavave. Uh, yeah, I mean that was that was also just really beautiful, big water, great great brown trout fishing. But I think when talking about Americans coming to Ireland, one of the um any any fly fisher is going to be excited about the size of these bugs and the and the hatches that uh that take place on on Carib and, and Chilin. But you also just have this, as you were saying, like the native brown trout, and you're in a lake, and these things are really, really good size fish and that is a a unique to there's just not there are surely stillwater specialists in north america that really like their lake fishing but the stereotype of fly fishing at least in the american west is still the the river runs through it in a drift boat in july in montana right and uh, and you're cast into brown trout and rainbow trout there, neither of which are native. And it's it's this great uh, 
still really beautiful experience, but you just, they just don't picture the lakes, but the lakes in Ireland are, they're so beautiful. And the, the culture of the boats and the size and of the bugs, both individually and the hatch and the way those fish come up and eat. um, I just think it's a, that in itself is a experience I would come over I would come to Ireland every year for that as much as I would come for Atlantic salmon fishing. I say that from the bottom of my heart. I think that's really a, a fantastic experience. I think I, I've mentioned on the show before, but I um, I would bring out a lot of uh, Americans. And as you said uh, earlier, a lot of the Americans I would bring out will be here for other reasons because they've got Irish connections or whatnot. Sure. But I did bring I did bring out a guy once um, who was just here on a holiday. And he'd been to South America and New Zealand. And he caught a lovely brownie with me. And he was really excited when he got it. And I says, you have to get a picture of this now before it goes back. And I says, I said, oh, yeah, it's lovely. It's great. It's great. No, 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 no. He says, this is my first ever indigenous brown trout. Right. And the, right. And the key was indigenous. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that really matters to anglers. I think, I think yeah. more and more, some people don't care. Right. But it's a, uh, I, I think the, the more fly fishers get in tune with, there's just something cool about catching not just a wild fish, but a native fish. And hmm. I mean, the two most popular fish to catch in the United States are largemouth bass and brown trout. And neither of them are native to, mo- you know, brown's not even to the country, but <laughs> largemouth bass have been spread all over the country from yeah. Florida, or whatever. And to, to go to a place like, but the indigenous nature, I mean, the, like Western states will have a, uh, a plaque or a certificate you get if you come to that state and catch like the five native trout that are there. There's just something special about the ones that are, survived and and uh no i i think there's definitely uh something to the catching an indigenous fish and especially in ireland where a lot of these people have you know anglers spent 40 50 years catching brown trout that have all been you know they're brought over in the 1800s or something like that and it doesn't surprise me that 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 guy was excited about that experience yeah, it was the first time it really at home to me. Uh, it was really amazing. And he really was. He was chuffed. Then I was chuffed. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, was that a lake or a river? It was a lake. I now, I guide mainly. I, I, I only guide on lakes. I okay. have two lakes here, a Corrib and Mask above me. So, gotcha. And that's why I was That's the same system, it. right? Mask is it's above. The, yeah, it's the same and system. Then, and there's, a, right. there's another lake on top of that as well, which is... Uh, small Cara, it's smaller, right. it's 5,000 acres, and right. I'd, uh, I'd go on that one as well. But I'm always interested, and that's why I was asking you about how you found our cul- culture, we'll call it, of uh, drift fishing. And when I when I say to Americans, you know, they're coming over, and I say, well, we, we'd be from a drifting boat, but I now know, now know to say, not a drifting boat as you know it, because right. to you, no. a drift boat is... No, people think drift boat, they think like dory shaped yeah yeah for the for the river but i do think that there are a lot of people who appreciate just the the history and the craftsmanship that goes into those mm. boats in ireland because they're really something special 
and I built boats with my dad. I know a lot of people. Oh, wow, did you? oh yeah. 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 He yeah, was, he cool. was a woodworker as a, yeah. you know, that's what he did for a living and they were not anything as cool as these, but they're like just little rowboats, you know, we made the mistake of fiberglass in one of them and made it too heavy for us to be able to put it in the truck. <laughs> but it's just a fun, um, it's just great to be out there in your own boat. And I, it's, it's so intriguing how every little system over there kind of has their own style. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're not that much different, but there is something different about, about each of them. We'll delve into Drake Magazine in a minute. Um, for people that might know, Tom is the founder, publisher, editor of Drake Mag. Um, but maybe just give us your own background, where you grew up and how you got into fishing and fly fishing. Sure. So I grew up in the state of Oregon, which is very similar to Ireland in terms of the temperature and climate and even the, the look of the country. It's big wine country out there. It's in the upper left-hand corner of the country. And, um, but my, my mom and dad had lived in Alaska for nine years. So I wasn't born up there, but my dad was a commercial fisherman in Alaska. And my whole family was really into outdoor fishing, but the, (laughs) I laugh because it's a fairly common question among a lot of fly fishing. I guided for several years in Jackson, Wyoming, and you're clients inevitably ask you how you got into fly fishing and did your dad get you into it? And my dad, he's passed away now, but he thought fly fishing was the dumbest thing he'd ever <laughs> Like most commercial fishermen could not understand why anyone would go out there and do it for, for fun, right? But so, but that said, I grew up in a uh, family that really valued the Hiking, fishing, camping, very, very outdoorsy, a lot of it along the Oregon coast. And then I went to high school and college out there as well. And that's when I first started getting into the steelhead fishing and the and uh, the two-handed uh, fishing. And that's on big rivers in Oregon. The Deschutes River is, flows into the Columbia. That, that's kind of the northwest's big artery system and like a lot of steelhead systems they have their struggles um but then uh i did i i went into the army for a couple years right after high school uh didn't get a fish lot there but then came back after that and uh after college ended up in wyoming and that's where i was a rafting guide first and then started guiding uh, fly fishing. And that was 94 to 99. And that in 98, I started the Drake. And that was, um, it was really just a hobby. sort of Like I had no idea that that first one, that very easily could have been my first and only one that I did. I just, I didn't have investors. I didn't have money to go out. I, it just really bothered me that all the fly fishing magazines at the time were all instructional and that there really wasn't a magazine out there for the culture of the sport or for people who already knew how to. And this was pre, you know, like the internet was around, but it wasn't like you can go and 
see how to tie every fly and things like that. Um, so I did that magazine that year and I did one issue the next year and then I was out of money and didn't do an issue, but I was working for some kayaking magazines and ski magazines. And then I, I did one a year for another three or four years. And finally it, at least it wasn't losing money. (laughs) Uh, but working for a ski magazine was, was really great. I mean, I, I have to give credit to the, my employees over those five or six years, because they had no problem with me doing the Drake on the side. Cause I put that out in the spring after ski season was over and it just slowly grew and got a following. And so by 2007, 2008, right when the economy was going to crap, I took it to four times a year and it actually worked. I mean, like, like a lot of fishermen, I didn't have money in investments and property. Uh, a lot of my readers at that time were about my age. And if they had an extra 200 bucks, they were going to spend it on fly fishing is what they did. You know, it was, it was never about um, that much of the tanking of the economy didn't affect a lot of people who were in their mid to late twenties and didn't have money invested in that economy. Right? <laughs> they were, they were just looking to fish and it was a different sort of magazine. So the advertisers uh, liked it and really have supported me ever since. This is 25 years that I've been doing it now. So I feel very fortunate that it, I, I still have a print product that people like. Incredible. Actually, I didn't realize it was 25 years. So congratulations. Not many magazines get to a quarter of a century, especially in the digital era. And not, not many companies, period, right? Yeah. But it's, you look back yeah. on things like that, and it's a lot of times it's, you know, you get your name in front of the right people, you have some breaks. I mean, I, I worked really hard, and I I do. One of my, the biggest benefit, I'd say, is I knew very early on in my life that writing was something that I wanted to do. Um, and that really, I've always loved it. I still love it as much as the the fly fishing. And I think the, the fly fishing industry right now is really, um, they're in a pretty good spot. I mean, there's the, like the little shops you see in Ireland that they're, I mean, some of the... Ex- they can be expensive, right? But but if you go to a fly shop um, down by Black Carib versus a one in Dublin versus one in the mountain, they're all going to have something a little bit different. And that's, I think, something that the, the industry doesn't always fully appreciate. You know, if you're going to go out and buy a set of skis or golf clubs, you can, you can get them wherever you want and use them almost anywhere, but there's something about going into a local fly shop and getting that information and buying those local flies that I think really adds a lot to the, the culture and ultimately the economics of, of, you know, the, the sport. And I just think it's, it's fun. It's great to go in and, and talk to these people and meet and in Ireland, you just have the added benefit of there being a pub right around the corner as well. <laughs> <laughs> which is fantastic well the, the, there's one in Galway where 
the pub and the tackle shop are under the same roof. Freenies, uh, Freenies, oh, yeah. yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Freenies, yeah. yeah. You have to check that oh, out next great. time. There's so much history yeah. to those pubs too. It's just fantastic. Tom, are you worried about the digital era? Like how has it affected your circulation, your readership? Is like, is your, has your, I suppose what I'm asking is, has your readership aged with you in those years or are you finding a younger audience? That's a great question, especially the way you worded it, because I, I'll fully admit that the, those first few years I was putting out the magazine when my whole circle was late twenties, early thirties guiding on the river. Um, and a lot of the advertisers that I had at that time, I really didn't have a big circulation. They just kind of, they knew that those were the influencers, right? At the time. I mean, guides and, and, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that fishing guides can't afford anything. None of us were buying $800 rods. Like they were really trying to get those readers and stuff. And uh, while I still have those, the, the, that guide element to the readers and the, and the, if they're going to read a magazine, a lot of them are still picking up the Drake first and maybe they don't pick up a magazine at all. Maybe they're, it's just on social media or whatever. But the truth of the matter is all those 20 and 30 somethings in the late nineties, early two thousands who were fishing guides and ski bums are now investment bankers and doctors and lawyers, and they all have money. It's, it's a great demographic if you're a manufacturer in the fly fishing industry. And it is kind of hard to, like you asked about digital I have digital versions of the magazine and I laugh when I tell people this because I do get, I get that question about, are you worried about digital? And the honest answer is I would go a hundred percent digital tomorrow and get rid of my $30,000 print bill if it would work. I mean, it, it's really expensive to to print those magazines. But the fact of the matter is that from a business standpoint, I'm a, I'm printing a $10 product that people buy off the shelves. And that's a big part of my revenue. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, I was more worried about digital 10 years ago than I am now in part because the online reading experience is still just, mostly horrible. Yep. Like, and I, I'm like everyone else, I'm reading yeah. my phone and my, even the best, unless you're a, a magazine, like a, a New Yorker or something that can afford to not have all the pop-up crap and the, but I try to support newspapers. I try to read all that stuff. And after I've had to hit eight X's in the first two minutes, it's just, it it's just not a great reading experience. And I, I, I think, yes, I, I'm proud of the magazine. And I think a, a big part of what has made it popular over the years is that there are a lot of essays and profiles that they aren't things that you can just sit down on a computer and Google, you know, you're reading about someone that you didn't even know existed until that it showed up. And so I, I've never had anything instructional in there. It's, mostly about the culture and maybe it's 
maybe there are words or phrases that someone new to fly fishing doesn't know, but they want to be part of the club, right? They'll, they'll figure out what that term means or what. um, And I think if you look around at most, especially outdoor type publications that have survived, it is the ones that write about the culture of it, the personalities, the, the travel, the profiles. It's uh, the whole package, the whole lot, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just, no, you, your leader is going to be, uh, or your tippet is going to be two X tapering down to five X. You know, I mean, you may learn yeah. some of those things reading and, it, but that's not... <laughs> but, but some of the best pieces have them included in it while they're still right. talking about lots of other things. Absolutely. You know, You're still... you know what I mean? Something, sometimes, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah, sometimes yeah. there's really good writers and, and, and the information is there, but it's not in bullet points or anything. And they're still right. telling you about the whole experience. And they're still sure. telling you about, you know, that the guy they were with was four generations up the side of the hill. You know, right. which we, right. which is important to know and what's happening in, in the area. Or as you say, when you go into an area like the culture of the boats, you're still getting that across. But um, yeah. yeah, when it's solely just instructional, it becomes a bit. Well, it can't but be repetitive. No. Right. Right. No. Th- yeah. and that's a it's, that's a really good point, because that was. Where I saw my in, frankly, like it, it wasn't just that. I was trying to talk to people who were, you know, they're advanced fly fishing, they're guides, right? But it was, it was also that just what you just said that, okay, once you learn how to fish with a strike indicator, why do you <laughs> want to see that story again every issue for the next 10 years? <laughs> Great. Another article just, about strike indicators. Woo. It just, it just <laughs> baffled me. And, yeah. and, Really, one of the more impressive aspects, especially over the last five or six years, there really are a lot of talented writers out there. I mean, maybe they can't all write a four or five thousand word feature story, but I have to say, one of the areas I got really lucky is that when I was starting out, first of all, I had a I was a reporter at a small newspaper, so you get to learn those reporting skills and things that back when every single town had a, had a newspaper and I happened to be in Jackson hole. So it was just a fantastic place to be and learn those things. I wasn't covering just football, basketball, and baseball. It was world-class mountaineers or skiing or whatever. But then from there and freelancing for magazines, I had really great editors you know, that I got to learn a lot from. And, and uh, it's hard now to, to find those good editors for a lot of people that haven't, didn't have the benefit of what I had, which was the newspaper base background. I mean, I got a degree in journalism that didn't teach me anything like, like most jobs, it was, you know, you're going to learn more in six months on the job than you ever learned in college anyway. But I, I think having good editors at what at the time were the men's journal and outside and these, these great American based magazines that had a really good editors in them. And so I try as much as I can to, to pass that along. I can be a hard editor sometimes, but 
but people like to learn and I learn stuff from them too. And, and I try to edit pretty lightly when it comes to the essays, just those little experiences. I mean, one of the proudest aspect, one of, one of the things I'm most proud of about my magazine is that there is a new writer in every single issue, at least one, probably more than one, but I don't think I've put out an issue in 25 years that didn't have someone in there that had never been in there before. And, and most of those come from those one page essays. Somebody had an experience and it's a unique story. And I tend to edit those pretty lightly. Like I don't give a shit about grammar. I just let it flow. Like, you know, like you're just sitting there and telling your friend the story at the bar. And I think, that was what I had seen in some of those other magazines in the nineties, the climbers and surfers and things like that. And, uh, and there was a big inspiration for what I've done ever since. Tom, two parts of this question. Um, where do you find the new writers? Like, especially in the early days, I'm thinking like, did you have to go out look and I presume at this stage, you know, you're inundated in terms of um, pitches and contributions. So where, how, and where did you find those good new writers? And the second part of that question is what are some of your favorite writers for Drake Mag? Well, the answer to your first question, I did have to go, uh, hunting, uh, pretty early. No one even knew I existed. Right. But I had a few great breaks and one of them that I wrote a handwritten letter to David James Duncan, who had written a book called the river Y that almost every young American fly fisher had read. And he had given a speech to the Portland anglers club. It was like in mid nineties or something. And I wrote him a letter and at that time, that the speech had never been printed anywhere. I just, or maybe in like a local Portland, you know, city magazine or something. But he let me run that in the very first issue of the Drake. And it just, so right out of the gates, I was like, here is one of the greatest writers, probably my favorite writer of all time, uh, just to try to A, set the standard, be like, this is, the kind of voice that this thing may have, you know? And, uh, and I did have a lot of other connections at other outdoor magazines, though I was writing for skiing magazines and I knew that some of those people fished and the, the culture in a lot of these ski towns was that a person uh, is a, a ski instructor or a patrolman during the winter and then a guy during the summer. And there was also a, just around that time, there was, there were far more women and far more young people in the sport than what was being portrayed in the media. I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't being accurately, people had the whole river runs through it idea in their head, but it, uh, groups like Trout Unlimited and companies like Orvis. And I think both of them would admit to this day that at that time it was, they were really kind of missing this movement of younger people in the sport, more women in the sport. Um, 
you know, people of color in the sport, all this stuff that was happening already, but it just wasn't getting shown. Um, and some of those writers, to get back to your question, were representing what was really happening. I mean, there were 20 something people that spoke in an entirely different voice than your, you know, retired guy wearing tweed. And, and, and part of it, those images of that time, frankly, are like the kind of thing you picture when you picture Atlantic salmon fishing in any of the countries you talk about. It's just snooty or too expensive or exclusive or traditional. None of which I really ever believed. And I saw it, uh, you know, and this is like the mid nineties and you had, they weren't just women guys. They were women who owned the company of guys. Right. But it just was not being shown or, or, you know, talked about in that way. So that's where I went for a lot of writers. Tom, Tom, sorry. Why do you think that was? I think a lot of it was just the, I know for a fact, some of it was just how like attending a trout unlimited banquet would be priced. It it was like $50, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to get the people in there that had the money. And so they, you go to a, a TU meeting. And again, I'm talking like, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, $50 was a lot of money <laughs> in a town like Jackson. So you weren't, you just weren't getting a true representation of the sport. You were getting the people who hired guys. You weren't getting the guys. The people who were really out there, yeah, super involved yeah. in the sport, you know. Yeah. And Jackson had that feeling. Um, I don't know how big skiing is in Ireland. Does anybody ski in Ireland? People grow up doing it. Well, Warren well, Miller was a big. Travel, they have to travel to do it. Have so to travel to do it. Yeah, but it was it's the same idea in these these mountain towns that just um to answer your question just because they weren't going to trout unlimited meetings or they weren't on these various sport doesn't mean they weren't participating in the sport they were mm-hmm. they just kind of and i was fully a part of that world i was right in the midst of it and and just felt like there should be some some voice to that and i think the answer your favorite writer's question i i aimed super high early on and because um over the next few years i got to work for some big ski magazines and some others again i would come across oftentimes what i was looking for was a a real writer who fished versus the other way around right but but um I could work with with people who I know. I mean, there there are writers like Tom McGuane has published half a dozen stories in my magazine that I have absolutely no right in getting, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I also own the magazine so I could pay writers what they were worth, you know, as long as the story wasn't too long. <laughs> but, but I think 
like a lot of writers like that, or even really talented photographers. In those years, they were really just in the Drake because they thought it was cool. They knew they weren't going to get really compensated by what they're necessarily worth. And to this day, I think it's there just aren't that many outlets. You know, people have to trust you as a as a um, writer and and um there are some people that that maybe they're really really good writing good at writing but they just don't kind of have that voice and then there's other writers that really they aren't writers at all they just speak from the heart and so it resonates with with um readers that at least this is authentic and and soulful and uh and all that, but I, I've had the everybody from John Gearock. I've had big name people in the in the magazine, but I, I, and I'm really really proud of that. But I, as proud of the people that have never been published anywhere before in their life, and they send me a picture of their story framed on the wall or something like that. You know, that's a that means a lot as well. And I don't think I I, I don't think it should underestimate as well the cachet attached. To being published in the Drake, you know, like the people are like, oh, you know, if you get, you know, you, you read of people say over this side of the pond that they're like, oh, I have a magazine or an article is going to be in the Drake magazine. You know, it's it's I like the New, so. I mean, it's, it's is, like the New Yorker of fly fishing journals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it still is. Uh, you know, most submissions don't make it in the magazine, so yeah, and sometimes it's that's that's probably the hardest part of the job. You know, I mean. I uh, <laughs> I used I I I think it's still there actually, but it's it was a. Did you guys get the motorcycle diaries over there? That that movie. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a part in that movie where uh, the young Ernesto or whatever and his buddy were walking down to the boat, and a doctor had given him a manuscript to read, and asked him what he thought of it. And his friend kind of lied and said, oh, we thought it was great. He thought it was great. And he asked, and he's like, no, no, you know, it's supposed to be Che Guevara or asks him what he thinks. And he finally just tells him, no, I, it's it's basically unreadable. I, it's horrible. <laughs> I think you should stick to it. <laughs> and I used to have that clip on my website. And it said, before you send me a story, watch this. And it was great. I mean, it was People just, you know, they just want to be told honestly, uh, you know, and that even that that guy in the clip, the doctor, he's like, nobody has ever been honest with me except for you, <laughs> and uh, not not to badmouth a bunch of doctors, but that, I do get a lot of submissions from, you know, retired medical professionals. <laughs> And it's just, uh, but they were the twenty somethings that bought your first issue. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, there's, there's definitely now. Now I, now I get the, I, I grew up with my dad. Got your magazine. I'm like, great. Thanks for feeling. But it, you know, it's, I think that stuff is a lot of that sort of stuff is a lot more accepted. I mean, that you know, it's, it's. I didn't sugarcoat 
what the life was of being a guide. You know, I mean, there was there was cuss words in there and weed references, and I mean, I split my time evenly between Colorado and Oregon. I mean, the two first states to legalize marijuana in the United States, and there was there was just a uh, again very similar to a to the ski bum culture and that that part of it and i would get letters telling me that they are going to cancel their subscription because i used cuss words and i would print the response like my mom told me the same thing (laughs) and that was the truth my mom would get so upset when she'd see cuss words in the magazine but it was I just wanted to put it out there like I think that's is part of it is the attitude of Drake you know famously you, you have on your front uh, cover of every issue what is it um right. uh, $10 for you know fly anglers 14 for bait anglers or yeah, you know Yeah 20 bucks for for bait fishermen yeah. The funny thing about that and you asked me about how you know how I grew up fishing I mean I grew up bait fishing and spin fishing like most of my friends did back then I didn't even pick up a fly rod until I was a sophomore in college. I think I uh, really had no idea what it was. And my family was from back in Minnesota. And it, I mean, it, it was, uh, it was all about, and I still think the best fly fishers out there are people who, if they didn't grow up bait fishing or spin fishing, at least have some sense of what it's about because that um, I just, I think you learn something on any any way you choose to go about it. I just prefer fly fishing so much. And it, it was, a, uh, I mean, it was just a way to kind of put something funny on the cover. It's definitely something that the Drake is more, you know, known for, um, is that sort of comedy. I make fun of, of bait fishermen and gear fishermen, but anybody that knows the magazine, knows I make fun of fly fish more than any of them as there's plenty to be made fun of there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Can I actually just uh, last question kind of on the content side of it. And uh, before we wrap up, sure. maybe on the, the fly fishing, um, you know, we're doing this as a podcast, you know, you've seen the proliferation of podcasts in terms of kind of right. consumption of the media. Um, and especially from, you know, a younger demographic as well, without all of us sounding like old farts, um, do you not worry about that kind of sense of we're, we're we're reading less and less that it's easier instead of, you know, in a couple of years, instead of picking up the Drake mag to read it, I'll just listen to a podcast about fly fishing. You know, do you not worry that that's kind of right, the right. way we're going? I don't worry about it. I, I just, I do think that, I mean, I love podcasts. They're just totally different. I don't really love the ones with people just sitting around, talking you know i listen to a lot of them like like this format when it's someone that i'm really interested in in uh learning about but i do think it's important if you're going to put out a magazine that's going to stay relevant and i i focus on this a lot in in the drake you better provide something else that they're not going to get in a typical podcast or typical magazine and for me and and i don't know if all my readers would agree with me on this but i do believe a huge part of it for the drake 
is the ability to do research, reporting, real, even at times investigative journalism, which is people think they laugh at it with in a sport like fly fishing, but there's so many conservation measures and stuff and I to write about and I push people a lot to um it better not just be something that you Googled up or you're just retelling the same story. And I think podcasts are the same way. If you really want to get an audience, you better be telling them something more than what they're getting somewhere else, right? Everybody likes learning things, but I, and I can go down a rabbit hole and it'll be hours of research. And I feel like I will have wasted my time. And sometimes I do, but other times I just, I'll learn these great stories. And I think it's, it is a skill to be able to weave those into your narrative. Um, but the the me and Joe fishing stories, if you think you can put out a magazine like that and keep it alive and keep people engaged, I, I good luck to you. I mean, you, it's, it, it should be hard work. It is hard work. People are paying $10 for this thing. And Anybody that publishes a magazine knows you have more competition out there for your time than there ever has been in history. So the only way to keep them coming back is that they finish that magazine and have learned something that they didn't know before and that it was worth giving up whatever the next Netflix show is that we're going to watch or, or whatever. Um, Fair point. So I think that's it. I do, I do love podcasts, but I, I love the ones that really where I'm learning something along the way. It's not just people sitting there BSing about nothing. Because <laughs> the barrier to that, entry is pretty that, low. You can get that in a pub. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, it, it's of all the one thing about the magazine now, it is there's a lot of barriers to entry if you're going to try to start a print magazine. Like I, I started really, really small and just grow it slowly because you either have money or you have time. And at 30 years old, like I didn't have money. So, you know, but I think now, I mean, that's part of the problem with podcasts, right? It's just, it doesn't take that much to just to stick a mic out there, but you can still tell the difference in, in the quality of them quite a bit. I hope. I hope people do. <laughs> um, just to bring it back. Yeah, they did. I got a new mic today. <laughs> uh, just just to bring it back to Ireland and maybe and and fly fishing, um, Tom, and and maybe just an, I, I'm fascinated by the link and the difference between you look at, you know, you mentioned the access to water here and the availability of fishing. Yes. In contrast to, and it's something that you guys have covered in the Drake Mag consistently, is there's a lot of issues about access to water and fishing in America at the moment. Just talk to us a bit about that. It's a particularly big problem in Colorado, which is the state I live in. And it's a it's a long, deep topic with legal repercussions and everything else. But the, the, uh, the most basic explanation is that... In the West, there is an awful lot of public land that people can access water on. But the belief 
among those who share my view is that the rivers that were navigable, that's the term, and it came from England, and and every state has their own definition of what navigable means. But Colorado, the state I live in, and it's a very popular fly fishing state, the position of the state of Colorado is that none of the rivers in the state are navigable. Therefore, they can be privately owned on both sides of the river and you can be sued civilly for even floating past someone's property. And that does not sit well with an awful lot of people. But you have this situation in the West and Colorado is the most restrictive. And then you have a state like Alaska where if you can stick a raft in and go, you can float whatever the hell you want, right? There, It's just, um, and, and most of the Western states and a good part of the country is fall somewhere along the lines of between those two. Between the two. But since politicians are making the rules here, you have a very similar circumstance where the landowners are the ones that are funding their campaign and the voters who are the ones that like to fish on these rivers are constantly in, in conflict. And the biggest difference with the state of Colorado is they haven't even let a case go to the Supreme court. They don't even, they don't want any sort of precedent set. So Mm. in the most recent case, this is a guy, he's 80 years old. He spent last 10, 15 years trying to bring this case just to have it be heard by the Supreme court saying, and all he's arguing to do is to stand in a river and fish. And not a not a small creek, a river that by all any logical definition is considered navigable. So it would be um it should be legal at the very least to just float past people's property. But but mo- the rule in most western states is as long as you're standing in the water, if you're below the high water line then that is considered public land. And so that's that's the big argument you have you have wealthy riverside landowners who either want to have a private fishing club there or a lot of times just want to flex, right? They just want to they don't I didn't pay this much money to have people floating by their my house. Um, and my view is that, buddy, you're fortunate enough, rich enough to own a riverside <laughs> home. It you should be able to watch somebody float by your property if they're not even getting out or touching their foot on the ground. I mean, the 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 attitude is that we don't just own both sides of the river we're on the bottom of the river and the air above it so if you're even floating by your i just can't even wrap my head around it but but it's a it's a huge 
issue in this state and in other states, and it's only going to get worse as more and more people move to these move to these states. But I, you know, there are certainly places like, you know, Ireland. There's private property on some of these rivers, and the the floating aspect is very different, right? Because you you don't have the volume where people are putting on these big rivers and floating by, but the ability to walk into a pub somewhere and just ask somebody, Hey, how much for me to go out there and fish? And it costs 10 or $15. I honestly think that is the, it is the biggest misconception about fly fishing in Ireland that (laughs) Americans have. I, I think they just file it under the same. They think it's like Scotland or Mm. Icelander uh, that, a, you, you really can't get on and to fish any of them. And if you can, the cost is going to be exorbitant. And uh, so that was, it was really eye opening to me. And, but the, the access one is tough. It's really tough. I mean, it, I, I think you can respect private property rights and still respect the, uh, the public's right to, to float and access. But if you're a, if you two were to come over to the West and want to take a road trip and fish around New Mexico, Colorado, Montana, Idaho, you would find a different set of laws, drastically different in each of the states you went into. So it's it's really hard to manage, and it's hard for, for people who are visiting here to know what the rule is on any particular stretch of water. Right. Yeah, it sounds confusing. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. It makes, well, yeah, we're very lucky yeah. with what we have. Just, I just wanted to ask you, I meant to ask you earlier on, as a guide myself, so I have a vested interest in this, because um, <laughs> you guide you guides when you were over here, any discernible differences between Irish guides and American guides? Oh, wow. I mean, first I'll say there's more similarities than there are t- <laughs> differences. And uh, like the sense of humor, what you might like to do after the river, all that sort of stuff <laughs> is, is kind of kind of the same. But there certainly there's a there's a far more deep knowledge of lake fisheries in Ireland. I, I there's not many fly fishing guides in the states that that guide on on still water. Like I said, there are there are some. Mm-hmm. Um but I do think that in terms of casting, especially two-handed rods. Um, and we just Americans have not been doing it for nearly as long as you know any parts of of the UK or in Ireland but there <laughs> one of the guides I had um, I wouldn't even say where he's a great guy <laughs> loved him but was very particular about the way I got my fly out there you know it was just driving him crazy that my cast. I, I love the look. I love the way you use the word particular. Oh, oh, and, and uh, so I mean, eventually, it, uh, we had one morning where you know he he was kind of riding me hard about what I was doing, and and uh, and I, I'm not, I've never been a great technical caster, right? But I do a lot of steelhead fishing, and I, I just said, you put your cast out there. And see where it lands, and then 
see if I can put my cast in that same spot and did. And then I was like, so what the hell difference does it make whether my cast, I mean, almost every Irish angle I've run into are, are superb casters, but there, there is definitely much more to, I think the history and style of um, what was really a more traditional, what we call a Scandi system with a much longer line and and uh and yeah he he was great but he was very particular about the way that it looked versus the <laughs> the end product when they're kind of fisher yeah, yeah the, the aesthetics yeah the aesthetics was was uh was, <laughs> was, was crucial perhaps the album did but now i i mean but, i really but very much it. but very much it's just like what you said like guides are guides so really wherever you go oh yeah yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I clicked with all of them in a heartbeat, right? I mean, it's just a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's not a, not an easy job. I will say there's like I, <laughs> um, I can't remember which, which place it was that we stayed. It was one of the, it was on this most recent trip, but Ashford, I can't remember. This is one toward the end, but it was uh, uh, right after we got there, we walked upstream and. There was a guy that had two, probably a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old. And I've been there. We've all been there. You've had those types. Of, and and uh, that it's just a tough situation to be, <laughs> be in. Yes. You're really teaching them something or are you just kind of like, you're just a babysitter for the day. They were kind of mm. into it, but kind of not really into it. They got to make sure he had to make sure that both of them <laughs> caught the same amount of fish. It just brought back so many memories of being in that position. So yeah, there's most aspects of guiding like that are universal, no matter where you are. We leave it at that. Enough said. Uh, Tom, our last question to you, and thanks a million for your time. We asked this of every guest. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Is what, was your most memorable fish on the fly ever ever if, if you've got one for ireland and elsewhere we'll take both i've had a couple very special steelhead a lot based on as much the location as the fish but i'd have to say most memorable fish is the been a giant trevally i just i'm super super lucky that because i get to own a fly fishing magazine i get to go to places like the seychelles where I would never, never otherwise be able to go. <laughs> and that was the most special outlandish um, place I've ever fished. And, and a, a couple of those fish, just the wild nature of them. And they weren't even huge, but between 30 and 40 pounds, is just something that's just so incredible being out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, uh, and, Ireland, I I had a couple of of really nice browns. I didn't one of the big ones on the lake, um, but it was object. Part made it so special is I just kind of forgot how far north we were. So you're you're sitting there in the middle of this hatch, and pretty soon it's midnight. <laughs> and you're and they're just they're still feeding and you're still fishing and it's just the you know 
spectacular fish, but you see these bigger, the the bigger browns come out when it gets a little bit later like that, right? Um, and I think uh, probably the biggest one that I had in the most memorable was on that first trip where on the river sure and it was one of those evening browns i was i was catching a couple smaller ones downstream and just saw this one up there feeding and uh and finally got it to come up and eat a small fly i think it was a I think it was a clink hammer, if I recall. But it was it was one of those fish that I had I I tried to cast to earlier, and it wasn't having it. But I kept on seeing it come up, and uh, it wasn't huge, but it was it was a twenty inch brown, which is just a you know they're they're hard to even find to begin with, and then you get them to eat, and that was just the whole setting, the fish, the 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 very end of the day and just a beautiful property that they have down there. But I had, I had really great, especially evenings, almost everywhere we went was, was the, on this, this past summer, especially just no shortage of trout. Um, and then you retreat to the bars. It's a fantastic place. <laughs> well Tom next time we'll have to get you an Atlantic salmon the next time you're over so no, we'll, I'll be back I'm sure gonna, I'll, I'll make that happen I, I look I look forward to it I really enjoyed the, the all the time I spent over there it was fantastic brilliant brilliant well thank you for your time and your insights and uh, long may the Drake mag continue to uh, fly the flag of great riding great riding about fly fishing and um, yeah long may it continue so Tom thanks a minute for thank joining thank you very us. much guys enjoyed it our thanks to Tom Bai for joining us on the show don't forget to rate review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from plus you can keep up to date on irelandonthefly.com as well as on Instagram and myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland <laughs>